Welcome to Footsteps, the Fort Larned National Historic Site podcast. I'm your host, Ranger Ben. Uh, in this season, we are taking a look at Fort Larned's past, present, and future. Uh, today is part two on Fort Larned's present, where we're focusing on keeping what's here, here. Uh, today, I'm joined by our volunteer, Lynn. How are you today? <laughs> I'm good. As we get uh, get this kicked off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what drew you to Fort Larned, and uh, some of the things you find interesting about being here. Yeah. So back in May of this year, my husband and I decided to semi-retire and take some time to do sort of a twofer. Um, one is to travel and enjoy the national parks because we love them. Not just the parks, like capital N, capital P national parks, but all the national park sites and also state parks too. Like we, we really love the, we really love the parks of this country. Um, so to do that, um, to travel, to kind of get into all the really great places that this country has to offer because it's huge and varied, right? It's, um, and any other continent, I think that you would, in order to see, you know, Niagara Falls and the Adirondacks and the, you know, the beautiful green mountains of Vermont and the coast of Maine, those would all be different countries, let alone down the swamps of Florida and, you know, the culture of New Orleans and then over into, you know, the prairie states and, and then down into the Southwest. I mean, and any other continent, those would be different countries. And in the U.S., it's all one country which makes it really easy to travel. But you still get this huge variety of beauty and culture and history, and it's, it's marvelous. So, um, so we're doing that. We're, we're taking some time. Um, we're still working part-time, but we're doing a lot of traveling, and we're doing a lot of volunteering in the parks because we found that that is a really amazing way to slow down and really absorb what is wonderful about a place. Yeah, as uh, Jeff was saying on the episode of Bill Chapman, uh, he said, you're lucky to have one, blessed to have two days uh, in a park. And so being able to spend one, two, three months at a park, you really get to get to dive in deep to what makes it special. Yeah. I mean, so we we live on site in our camper and... Every single morning we watch the sunrise, look over at this really cool historic site that is part of this, you know, it's a, the Santa Fe Trail is a fairly obscure small part of American history, but also really interesting and, and really important in its own way. I mean, it, you know, I think you'll hear later in the episode, Tyler refers to this fort as being on the highway of the time. And it was, right? I mean, this was... The Santa Fe Trail was a really big deal. Yeah, and no, it was a it was a great interview, and like you said, it was it was cool to hear Tyler's perspective um, and his experience in the parks as well. Uh, so our guest today is uh, Tyler Blind. He is our uh, his official title, I believe, is carpenter. Uh, he is here uh, through different project money and things like that, uh, helping uh, with historic preservation and restoration on a few of our buildings. One of my favorite parts of the interview was uh, getting to hear just how deep he has to go into learning from those before him 
and doing research into historic preservation techniques to redo some of these things the same way that they were done 150, sometimes 200 years ago. Uh, and so that was that was uh, really neat for me. Yeah, I would say what really resonated with me in Tyler's story and his journey with the national parks um, was something that I think he and I probably both have in common, which is that our our roles with the parks is to sort of be a bit like Mary Poppins, right? Like we get to we get to come into a a place that is already wonderful in its own way. And then we get to, at least for a time, put our hands on it and make it better and also really enjoy it. He got to put his hands on all sorts of different, really interesting stuff in really interesting places. And he got to enjoy not only his work, but also the place of the National Park site where he was. That was a great interview. Uh, we had a great time and we hope you also enjoy it. So here you go. Welcome, Tyler. Well, hello. Thanks for coming on and... Uh, Telling us a little bit about what you do. Why don't we get started with your name, title, how long you've been here, and what other parks you've worked at. Well, my name is uh, Tyler Blend. Here at the park, I'm technically carpenter, um, but it's also called like historic preservationist. I have worked, I started off at uh, Herbert Hoover National Historic Site in uh, West Branch, Iowa. That was uh, July of 2015 to November uh, 17. Uh, working seasonally, six months at a time. Um, that's just the uh, birthplace and burial site of uh, former President Herbert Hoover. They have his original uh, birthplace cottage there and his gravesite up there. And uh, then next was a, I had a year and a half break, and then we went back to the Park Service, and that is when I came to Fort Lauderdale for the first time. In June of 2019, that was right after... Memorial Day. With all the, the flooding. When the park was closed, yep. I remember like a week before moving here, I was, saw the Instagram and there's water. They closed the park down because the entrance road was flooded. I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's going to be some work to do when we get there. Uh, turns out that kind of like reduced the amount of work we had to do because there's no mowing to be done. That's true. Because you don't mow in that wet of grass. The oxbow had water in it. I remember that. And I think it may be a month or two later that it was finally not standing water in the oxbow. And everyone was like, that's never happened. So then it was Fort Larned. And then that was done in uh, December. And then April, the third week of April in 2020, I moved to uh, go Seneca Falls to work at the Women's Rights National Historical Park. There I was just a regular maintenance worker like I'd been everywhere else. That was done. Done working there uh, in December, and then went to April of 2021 was uh, Cuyahoga Valley National Park, and there I was uh, I was a painter there, a painter helper, and then the following spring I got hired here as a carpenter. That was uh, shoot. That was with project money too, right? So yep. even though this is a temporary position, it's been extended quite a bit uh yep through uh yep that was originally project money and then it got switched up to like a temporary covid hire money and now we're just uh adrian and i are uh being paid out of soft funding type money right now okay. so so for listeners who have no idea what those terms mean 
What is project money? What is soft money? What is COVID money? I don't know what the soft money hard money. That would have been a question to ask Chappie when he was on. It's like fixed money. Then there's like extra money they can use stuff here and there for. And I believe that's, as far as I know, that's what is money we can use here and there. Other money has has to be spent on this and that. Then they're like the soft money can be here or there where we need it. And they've decided to keep uh, keep us around a little while longer. Hence why we're doing all the all the work on this building is that we're currently in the the commanding officer's quarters is all the tear out stuff we're doing in preparation for restoring it to what it looked like and opening up to be an exhibit is all out of that. Okay, so project money is earmarked for a very specific project. Yep. And soft money, the fort or historic site or whatever site can use at its own discretion for what it thinks needs to get done. I'm sure it's a lot more complicated than that, <laughs> but that's uh, uh, <laughs> um, that's what it something like something along those lines. I I, I can't tell you. Or I'm not a facility manager or somebody else like that. But uh, project money is they get you know. Uh, People like uh, facility managers have to figure out project, figure out how much it's going to cost, put that all in the system, and then get that kind of money approved as like extra money for the park over like the base budget. And so that is all. That's what I've, besides when I was at uh, Women's Rights, that was what I was always paid out of for every park I've been to. It's always been, I got a project. They get them like every year they get a project for their seasonals to be able to work on and you work out of that. Okay, so when you come into a park, generally you are extra. You're not part of their core staff. You come in and you just you help out with whatever above and beyond stuff you can get done for them. If you're talking the difference between like permanent, yeah. But they plan on seasonals every year and they know it's gonna be part of the budget every year for certain seasonals and stuff like that. So they just have to have certain projects lined up for the seasonals to do. Yeah, they they line it up so well that they can pretty much they plan on it every year unless something like major or drastic different happens. So, what led you to work for the national parks? I've always enjoyed the parks. Being outside, um, it's going to sound random because like some people are like, oh, I just I did this. I volunteered to do this. So I can get in here and do all this. That that wasn't me. Mine was pretty random. Uh, I was going back. I used to work in a factory, and when they laid me off, I decided to go back to college and, uh, and get a degree. And after getting my associates and then headed back to the University of Iowa, to actually not headed back, but going to the University of Iowa, um, while working there, I was doing granite uh, work like I'd done before a, long, a while ago, and just a really bad day working at a company that I didn't like with the, you know, school stress and other things going on in life. And I mean, a really bad day on top of what was not being good weeks, you know, and I just went home and ignored my schoolwork and just applied for like 20 different jobs. And one of them was the National Park Service who called me up. And, you know, within a while later, I was doing fingerprints and, you know, the background checks and everything. But yeah, no, just, uh, Bad day at work, stressful, decided to apply for a bunch of jobs. I'm like, well, that sounds fascinating to work, you know, in a historic place. And so I applied and, yeah, then actually got the job. So then the follow-up question to that, what has kept you in the National Park Service? Uh, well, yeah, that is the most important part. I I do really like history. I like old-style, like, construction stuff, the way things used to be, and just working in the Park Service – 
I've worked for corporations. I've worked for small businesses, and it's always a lot of ah, just get it done, just just get it done. And you know, if it's messed up, maybe we'll get to it later. The way our system works, the bar, it has to be done right the first time. We don't have all the time to do it this way. We don't have all the budgeting or just the time or anything. Like, do it right because it's historic. When it needs to be done right the first time and done well. And so I do like that. Preserving history, I think, is and you know amazing and important. And then you get to like other different non-historical parks, and you know you're preserving like nature and cultural stuff. And you're just like, yeah, okay, yeah, this is you know it's it's a great mission to be on to help preserve all this stuff and to actually also help and increase my skills and everything like that. And it's not the same thing every day. You could go out and be doing masonry like I used to do, and just doing. Brick after brick after brick after brick or block, <laughs> you know, whatever. And, you know, that that does get boring and tedious at the time. I'll get really good at it because I am good at repetitive tasks, but it does get a little... For the mind, it's not that exciting or rewarding, but you get to work on whole, all kinds of different stuff over here. It's, yeah, it's, it's fun. You get to go see some nice places. I really enjoy, like when I was at Cuyahoga Valley, I would just plan uh, some of my days where I had to go do other stuff. I'd plan my day and just take a park at a, by the lake or by this or watch the steam train go by or, you know, just bring a lunch and it's like a picnic every day, you know, the park service. It, it's quite nice. As long as the weather's good, you know, sometimes it's not so great and sometimes your picnic flies away when you're in Kansas. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you can't, you know, it's like, oh, it's a beautiful day. If it wasn't for that wind blowing everything away. <laughs> Whatever national park you're in, you're usually not too far away from nature. And just being able to just go out and just, yeah, sit amongst the trees or the prairie out here and just watch stuff. Yeah. So it sounds like you have pretty good experience working on both modern renovations as well as historic renovations. Could you describe the difference of what it's like to work on one versus the other? A lot of material difference. There's a lot, you know, like your lumber if you go down to the basement of this building where we tore out the chimney that used to be there, you can see the the lumber that they used to have there. They're not two by four pine. And, you know, two by four, we're not even talking about, you know, modern lumber is not even two inches by four inches. Yeah, you're, you're actually smaller than that. And the, down there in the walls of this building, we've seen that they're actually like four by four posts. Like you would have like for a fence, like literally what we have, like the fence posts out here is what the the studs on these walls are made out of. And then even uh, so some of the floor bracing as I was under, the, uh, under there yesterday trying to hammer out that uh, foundation. And yeah, you, the, just different lumber materials. The stone materials can be different. A lot of different materials. And just the way things were done a little bit differently back then. You don't have all the screws. That would think there's a lot more, a lot more nails holding stuff in, or sometimes just more like friction fit type stuff, where it's just it's so tightly put together that it doesn't need all those extra stuff. It takes a bit more time, a bit more precision, but it sounds yeah. like it might also be a bit more mental work for you guys to figure out how to reconstruct some of the materials because you're not going to go to Home Depot and buy it off the shelf. Oh, yeah. No, I had to go uh, the materials for some of the windows that we're doing. It has to be clear white pine, and there's not any of that. So just uh, last year I had to go take the trailer and drive all the way to uh, Springfield, Missouri so with an overnight stay and pick up a trailer full of clear white pine lumber for us to have. 
continuing down the line of the the modern stuff versus the historic stuff, both times you've been here have focused on a different thing. So yep. uh, your first time here, your project that season was uh, some of the new museum renovations. And then this time you're working on more historic renovation or historic preservation and, and restoration of some of the windows and things like that. So why don't you, why don't you go into some of the differences there or some of the challenges that you had with both of those? Uh, yeah. Um, the 2019, they, uh, I think they began in fiscal year of 2018 doing some stuff in museum, moving stuff around. So yeah, I came through when the museum was like, it had a lot of stuff. I, I never saw what the old museum looked like. I saw like half of it because they still had like half the stuff on display while it was blocked off, kind of moving stuff around as we were working. And that's the interesting part about working you know, in museums or in some of these areas. We're still trying to keep it open for the public because some people don't go to the parks, the same park, all the time. Some people, this will be the only time they ever head to this park to see what it is. So we kind of want to have on display all that we can. doesn't always happen that way. And and especially, you know, who not a lot of people come out to learn it, you know, as it was. You know, this used to be right on the, a stop on the interstate of the day, and it's not anymore. Yeah, the, we were doing drywall and uh, painting and then putting some carpet down, gluing carpet down, carpet squares with a little rubber backing on them. Yeah, it's not stuff they did back in the day. Uh, there's some electrical stuff going on, putting in all the track lighting. And those aren't things that you that you do. You don't build drywall for these buildings. I mean, these are you know, these are wood lath and uh, plaster put up on them. And so that was a lot more modern going on with there. And now here, yeah, fixing windows and you know the clear white pine and just tearing them all apart. A lot of them like they they don't use. The, the trim around to keep the actual window in, those were nailed in, but, like, the actual, like, uh, sashes themselves, there's no mechanical, there's no nails or screws holding them in. Those are all, you know, just, like, uh, mortising and tenon joints and little wedges and actually friction fit everything in together so they actually hold together without having to be screwed or anything like that. So I got to do that. I'm doing a little, a little detailed, like playing with a shaper to do like what we would do, like molding type work to make uh, the muttons and the rails on the windows. It was a brand new thing for me here to learn. I'd actually like work a shaper and get those blades, which uh, the former uh, carpenter made most of them by hand. Uh, those blades to actually do a lot of the profiling on these. Mm-hmm. And every building has a different profile and a different thickness of these windows. So it sounds like you... Even here at Fort Larned, which is a historic site, you've done pretty big spectrum of both modern stuff, like in the museum, largely modern renovations, mm-hmm. versus here over in the officers' quarters, which are being renovated, where it's all extremely handworked, custom, truly historic renovations where you're trying to be as authentic as possible. Uh, we got to paint the walls with paint rollers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's... That's a, that's a that's a that's about. I mean, you got some power tools to work them. It's a lot easier to make those sashes in the shop than what they would have done back in the day. But yeah, no, it's about some of the more modern tools. But yeah, oh, we could use paint rollers on the walls. So ideally, you'd like a brushed look on the walls. But modern paint nowadays does not let. They're all self-leveling paint. So like, you can't even. Yeah, you you can't buy paint at the store to actually get a brushed look anymore. Um, there 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 are ways, but it won't be. All the good paint doesn't let you put brush marks in it because, yeah, uh, a chappy here I wanted me to do that on the first room that 
we did over on nine on the on the renovation project last year, and I waited till that paint was almost it was just the tackiest it's ever going to be. Some of it was even so, and I took a brush and I just the whole every, whole two walls of that room there, top to bottom. Came back and I was like, okay, there's the brush look. Came back the next day and all perfectly smooth. <laughs> oh goodness! So those are some stuff with the materials that is different. When you're doing now that it, yeah, you can't really do that. Those paints nowadays are actually so much easier for like your average consumer to use, so they don't have to worry about putting like brush marks. It's possible, but not really feasible to do with. So how are you learning to do all these different historical techniques? Like you said, you had to figure out how to try to put brush marks on the wall, <laughs> and you, and you're learning, you know, you're learning how to make custom molding, for example. So. Can you give us some examples of different skills you've had to learn and maybe how you figured it out? Well, um, all the window stuff that I was having to do here, I can uh, thank uh, the former coworker. Huge, huge help. And that was part of what, you know, uh, part of my hiring here is uh, Cappy's like, I know you don't know entirely how to do this, but I know you can learn it. And so Robert's going to help you do it because Robert's been doing it for 12 years, but he's got his own projects and everything that he's got to do. So he doesn't have time to do this major project on nine. Uh, I'm sorry, seven or is the South Junior Officers Quarters, as we would call it. It's interesting. I, You know, as a person who is, I think of myself as a National Park super fan in some ways, <laughs> love the National Park system. Um, and I definitely think of it as a place of recreation and beauty and preservation. I really had never thought of it until now as also a repository of historic skills. When I asked you how you learned that, you said, I learned it from someone else who'd been doing it for 12 years. And he probably learned it from someone else who'd been doing it for a decade or more. Um, yeah, Robert went to, he went to school, but not entirely for that. And then, yeah, so he had to learn most of those skills here. I mean, yeah, it's those skills that you pick up and learn on. It's like, uh, to revert to that, we're tuck pointing on the, uh, the blockhouse. Uh, what we were doing earlier this year. I, I've done tuck pointing previously. I learned it when I was going to school for a year doing uh, uh, for masonry. And I've done it on chimneys, buildings, porches, and stuff like, you know, lots of different things. Mostly chimneys, though. That was actually part of what got me hired at Herbert Hoover initially was that they had uh, two chimneys they needed tuck, tuck pointed. One in their schoolhouse and one on their blacksmith. Okay, uh, so can you, for folks who haven't been here or haven't been here in a while, could you... Describe three things. What is the blockhouse? What does it look like? And then what is tuck pointing? <laughs> yes. Um, so the blockhouse, it kind of sits off the like the parade grounds a little bit. It's like this weird building. It's kind of different from the, I mean, all the other buildings are rectangular. And the blockhouse sits out there. The blockhouse is hexagon shaped uh, with a little a very shallow uh, cedar, uh, very shallow pitch cedar roof. Then it's got like a sentry watchtower on, on on top. It's made of the same sandstone that all the other buildings around here are made out of. And it's got a tunnel inside and a door that leads to a well room. I think uh, Ben would be able to better tell exactly what the blockhouse was used for because my understanding was it has two different purposes back during the fort period. Yeah, so the blockhouse originally was a defensive position um, and was one of the first sandstone buildings to be constructed. 
so there's 100 rifle loopholes in there to help defend the fort from all angles. It was a last-ditch effort uh, location if the fort was under attack. You do have the loopholes in the two other south buildings, too, that you could defend the fort with. But then uh, since it hadn't been used as a defensive position by the time the army gets around to constructing the guardhouse, uh, which would be in between the shops and the new commissary, uh, they realized that they hadn't used the blockhouse, likely wouldn't uh, have to use it. And so they decided to save money and convert the blockhouse into the guardhouse. Uh, so that tunnel led to an underground well in the case that the fort was attacked. Uh, you still had access to water. But then that tunnel became solitary confinement for the especially misbehaving soldiers. But yeah, you get the two, two levels of rifle loopholes uh, for the defense of the fort, but then later the guardhouse. What's a rifle loophole? That's a good question. On a ship, it's called a porthole. On land, it's called a loophole. Uh, but it's uh, a hole in the side of the building that you can use to stick your rifle out of and help defend the fort. So the blockhouse, in summary, is a combination of a guard and sentry building. Um, and it's hexagon-shaped, so they have a pretty good view from all angles of who might be coming. Um, it's also fortified in a way that if there was an attack, soldiers could get in there. They had lots of places to point their guns out of to hold down the fort, literally. Mm -hmm. um, and then also it was used as a place for punishment. So if you yes. were a misbehaving soldier, you might be sent there with a ball and chain. You might be sent there and put down in the, in my opinion, very creepy Solitary. Not smelling so fantastic. Solitary I, confinement. I was in that tunnel earlier floor. this year doing replacing uh, boards in the tunnel that were rotten out because there was moisture getting down in there. It was not very comfortable. And I'm not very tall. I'm only like 5'9". So, yeah, it's not a comfortable <laughs> walk down there. Okay, so now we know what the blockhouse is. <laughs> What is tuck pointing? Uh, tuck pointing is just a, it's not done a whole lot nowadays, but even that's kind of how um, masonry structures are designed. So masonry structures, you have your stone, but then so they're not just like free free holding stuff. You put your mortar in to help hold them together. And the mortar, best way to put it is like the material, the whatever masonry material you're using, doesn't matter what type of stone it is, brick, block, or whatever, um, even sandstone like this, those aren't supposed to wear down or break or, or, or degrade. If it is, there's an issue going on elsewhere with the building, maybe what water's getting in or whatever. Um, the mortar's supposed to wear, like especially as buildings shift and move. We have them on these buildings. We have gauges on these buildings. We're measuring these buildings and how they shift and settle and move. And with the tuck pointing, you're going to have joints that wear out. Just over through like erosion and time, and sometimes they'll crack from the shifting, but that's where they're supposed to crack. When you like walk on a sidewalk, and those sidewalks they'll pour a sidewalk primarily, it's all one piece of concrete, but they'll cut or they'll put grooves in that, and that's designed to be where as the sidewalk shifts and weather changes, that's where the crack goes. Mortar kind of does the same thing, that's where usually that's where you want the damage to go to because that's easy to replace. Replacing actual stones and bricks, that's a thats a lot more work. Don't want to do that. So the mortar is designed to wear away instead of the actual stone. And that's why you have castles that are, you know, when you go over, I love castles. <laughs> when you go over to other countries, that's why you have castles that have been there for hundreds and hundreds and some almost like over a thousand years. 
And the, the stones and materials in there are still the original stones because that's how they're designed to be built. So you, so tuck pointing, whether they're wearing away themselves or whether the mortar's just starting to crack and have holes in it. Uh, tuck pointing is where you just go in. Usually you can, you can hand chisel them if you need to, or you can use like a grinder with a special little bit on there, a tuck pointing bit, and it'll, it'll knock all that mortar out. Usually go back about a quarter, maybe a half an inch. And so you remove all of that mortar there from that damaged area or section, and then you just go back in. You take a little bit of mortar. I usually put it on the back side of my masonry trowel, and then you have these little tuck pointers, which are just like really thin. They're they're like a trowel, but they're like a masonry trowel, but instead of like the diamond-ish shape, they're rectangular, and they're thin. You can get them up like a half inch, three-eighths, um, quarter inch, um, sizes. Um, we even have an eighth. We even have eighth inch ones here, because the stones around here, some of them are slapped together so tight. Some of them are actually touching, and then they like groove out the outside of the stone, and then fill it full of mortar to give you a false joint. And you just take the mortar, you put it on the back side of your trowel, and instead of like scraping it onto the material like you would for like another um for like actually putting together a wall you just take your little tuck pointer you put that the trowel like up against it and you just slowly but surely just just push it off the trowel and into the hole and not to change sizes depending upon especially around here um it's it's a full kit of, of tuck pointers and yep you're just slowly filling them in till you're out towards the front of them uh, flush with the stone then give it a little bit of time to dry because you'll kind of have like muffin top like little squeeze overs from the tooling and then you can just take a brush and brush them all off and they'll give them a nice brush look or and it'll get all the little flakes off there from what you're pushing in there because I mean you have to make sure they're full if you do not fill them in and you leave gaps moisture will get into those gaps and then moisture in a wall will damage it and then that's just, yeah, you just need to fill them full or else water damage is going to happen. And then they're going to erode and go bad. But yeah, you just fill them full like that. It is a very tedious process. People watch me do it sometimes and they're just like, oh, like they just could not imagine <laughs> doing it themselves. But I like that tediousness. I, I, I like that, especially it's one of those projects where you grind it out your section. And then within like 10 minutes. You got all your mortar in there, and then however fast it's drying, you go right through, and you, you can do like a whole section in like fifth, in like a half hour grind to a brand new joints. The difference you can make is just huge, and it's and it's good for it because yeah, we're putting that mortar back in. So your modern mortar has like Portland cement in it, and so they last like 50, 75 years. That's why you don't see tuck pointing happen a whole lot nowadays because your mortar is so strong. Our mortar here, they didn't have Portland cement um, back in the day. It's a weird history of Portland cement, but we didn't have it. And then we especially didn't have it over in the U.S., so it's just sand and lime. And a two-part sand, a one-part lime mix. The sand is your bulk, and then your lime is your elasticity and, and kind of holds all the glue together. And like some of these, the, the lime is out of it, so it's just like compacted sand. So what are you using for mortar now? Are you using historically accurate mortar? Yes, we have to use historically accurate mortar here because it's what we it's what we call a soft mortar. So like every mortar has like pounds per square inch of pressure it can take and or like it gives off itself. And your mortar has to be weaker than your stone, essentially. That way, if we were to put, and it had been done before during the ranch period and, and maybe 
other times where there actually is like Portland mortar used in these buildings. That's not good because then when the building shifts and moves, the mortar will be stronger than the stone, so it'll cause the stone to actually break or start to to, to spall, as we call it, where like it starts to flake off near the near the edges of the mortar. So as everything moves, you know, if there's pressure when the, when they move, something has to give. The idea is it's the mortar that gives or wears away. Then we can just replace that easily. It's just you know going over a tuck point. I guess some people don't think it's easy. I think it's easy. Oh, here we go. Bump, bump, bump. Tuck point the mortar back in. It's just otherwise the stone will actually damage. And we don't want that. Even if it wasn't a historic building, that's a lot more work. And then on a historic building, we're trying to preserve the history around here. So that's a real bummer when that kind of stuff happens where you got to actually replace something historic around here. So, yeah, no, we use what is just a soft mortar because uh, that's what we have to use around here. It's not just for historical accuracy. It's for the safety of the material itself. Yeah, because the sandstone of the buildings here are... It's pretty soft stone. They're very soft stone, and these are even harder than what they naturally would have been. If you saw what we were doing on the block house just last month, after we got done tuck pointing, we were spraying it. We were actually spraying this uh, a consolidator with this consolidator that makes the stone stronger, about twice as strong as it actually is. And that's one of our pr- preservation processes around here. So a consolidator uh, is something you'd spray on stone to help prevent the stone from eroding? It makes it stronger. Okay. Yep. yep. So it'll it'll hold up to the weather a lot more. It won't be as easy. You know, as you know, you go around the buildings of this here, and there's a lot of people scribing into the walls, and there's a reason they did that. It's very easy to do it. It does not take a whole lot of time for somebody to come through and do that. And just to be clear for everyone listening, no one is writing their names on the buildings anymore, but they used to prior to the Park Service. It's it's no longer legal. <laughs> yes, there you as, go. As that's, that's, there that's, you go. That's a very good point. <laughs> and that's another thing too. That uh, one way you can help out if you are visiting is to if you see something like that happening, say something about it. Uh, we'll be very grateful. And uh, your historic structures are just like uh, nature. Leave it the way you saw it when you came in. Yeah, exactly. feel free to take pictures. That's it. <laughs> yes. But it but it is difficult with all the ranch period stuff that adds to the history of, of, of these buildings. They go and they're like, oh, well, these people did. Oh, they're, they're everywhere. And then they kind of get that idea to do it themselves. Just like, yeah, no. That's, yeah. Yeah, some yeah. visitors definitely do not know before they talk to us. They don't know that the graffiti is actually fairly historical because they'll see, you know, dates from the 1900s and think, it's still going on until we explain that, no, no, now that it's National Park site, it's not allowed anymore. The previous owners encouraged it, but now it's a no-no. I call it historic tagging <laughs> instead, sure. of, uh, sure. instead of graffiti, which speaking of which, um, over in uh, the, the South Junior Officers' Quarters, in one of the rooms over there, when last year we were doing a painting, wallpaper repair, uh, re-oiling the floors and uh, wood grain staining. Uh, it's just a very complicated process. Uh, so to do it, you have to have bare wood and then you prime it. And usually with white clear white pine, it absorbs primer so quick and so much. You have to prime them twice. So two layers of primer, a layer of Franciscan ivory paint, and then a layer of stain. Then another, which then you wait to get slightly tacky paint thinner and a brush and a rag and you go over that you're trying to thin it out to where it has these wood grain stains you can see the layer down below and then you do that for a second layer of stain and then you got to go with your clear coat of poly 
to give it a nice shiny look. So that's six coats, and those coats of stain, um, from the best guesses of, uh, I guess, a guy back in the 1980s, those coats of stain, sometimes they're not even like straight up this color, that color. They're two different colors, or they're two different colors mixed together. <laughs> and, so why, why was it important for you to do six layers of staining and painting and priming? Because that's the way it was done. Even that's, back in the day, that's the way it was done. That's it. So that is what, to our absolute best guess, what they were done. Another one of those skills that you have to learn that you don't get when you go to other places. Like, I was, like, getting some tips from, like, some other people who've done it before. But then I'm like, you know, I I like to look up stuff myself. I'm like, wonder if there's anybody online who, like, oil grains, Danny. Yeah, no. So I'm just going to have to, like, learn this, like, the old school way of just, like, trial and error, trial and error. It's like, oh, that's not right. Clean a bunch of it up and try it again. Just yeah, trying to get these colors to match. So once upon a time... You and I were talking about your career with the Park Service, and you said to me something that I loved. You said, obviously, there's pros and cons to being a seasonal employee. One of the things that you really loved about being seasonal and about moving around from park to park was that you felt, in some ways, like you were retiring in reverse. And I've never heard anyone say that before. I thought it was fantastic, it's, and I'd love for you to describe what that means to you. such a millennial thing to do right now. You have people, <laughs> I mean, I yeah, places I've worked, I have a friend of mine, he's backpacking through Nepal right now, and I don't, like, I saw yesterday somewhere in Europe, He's he travels a lot, he's like worked in like Moose over by the Grand Tetons, like working at ski, ski resorts and plowing roads and stuff like that, and I see people come to the parks, and I can't walk, like even like certain steps, even like handicap accessible areas they're still weary about because physically they can't do it any they can't do it and you know some of the hikes that i go on beautiful places like that you know my buddy justin shared the story about like he was people would ask him like as he was working near a national park what's the best place to go here and he'd tell him go through this mountain range i think it was grand teton go through this mountain range it's a blueberry field between two mountain ranges and you can just eat blueberries one of the most beautiful places he's ever seen and but those people couldn't do it because like, is it a concrete path all the way out there? Like, no, it's a dirt path. Like, ah, we, we can't do dirt because of our, our, our bodies. and our, It's just, even if we get to an age where we can, like, retire, if we make it there, can you financially do it? You know, and then are you mentally there? I'm going to have all time. I'm going to have Alzheimer's when I get old. <laughs> That's just, it's just where it is. It's, I'm guaranteed it. And I'm like, so am I going to be mentally capable of doing, you know, of enjoying it or doing it? And then, you know, physically too. Yeah, it's not good in the pocketbook. You're traveling a lot. You don't know exactly where you're going everywhere, but it's, it, it is fun and enjoyable. Like I said, I've been, you know, Kansas in the middle of nowhere as Fort Lauderdale is. It is a wonderful, nice place to stay and hang out and the people here and the history and the stuff to see in the area. And then I've been to New York and I've been to Ohio. And it's just, by the way, may I add how amazing it is, this podcast right here with the three of us. We are in the middle of central Kansas and we are all at one time, we're residents of the state of New York. We all lived in New York. That's true. That's true. Yeah. As, as, <laughs> I really wanted to point that out in this podcast. I don't want to edit it out because that I find is fascinating. We all three at one time live, me, I for not nearly as long as some of you guys, but yeah. Not at the same time. No, no, no. Us. Not at the same time. But at some point we were all living in the state of New York. Sure. Yeah. So for you, retiring in reverse means you're still working. But you're getting to do some of the things that folks dream about doing when they retire. You get to explore the national parks. You get to 
visit different parts of this country and really get into the nooks and crannies of what's interesting and beautiful about it. Yep. When while, I was in- while you're working and while you're young enough to really enjoy it. In that way. Yeah. And some people don't realize, you know, well, years ago, me and some coworkers, we took a camping trip out in the middle, literally out in the middle of the prairie in the middle of nowhere. You're like, oh, no, you got to have like this great scenery. Like the prairie in the areas out here is it's great scenery in itself until you're out here, even outside of the cities, really, and just enjoying that. Just we camped out there and just did primitive camping out, out there. We're like, this is just nice and wonderful. And then I'm gone, you know, and camped in the Adirondack Mountains up up, up in New York, up in, up in the Catskills and everything. Oh, just wonderful places. Been to Niagara Falls. And then uh, you know, at the end of seasons, I take, you know, I take a week to get back to Iowa where I usually hang out my off season. So I go to all these different places and like the Great Smoky Mountains. If you see a place, stop at it. I would say that's <laughs> the other thing the three of us have in common is totally enjoying American history, Americana, the diversity of this country. That's why we like the national parks, too. Absolutely. Now, to finish us off, the one question that we always ask, how can our listeners help? Just uh, don't play around with the buildings. Go in. Don't touch things when you're not supposed to. Just leave the park as you came in. The only people who should be making changes to it is me, because that's my actual job. <laughs> and there's actual ways I have to go. We have we talked about some of the ways, and we have compliances and everything to do. We, it's Doing my job takes a lot of, oh, did you, you have to do it this way and that way and this way and that way and this way. And I was like, oh, yeah, it's com- more complicated with you know historic preservation. So, yeah, just leave the parks the way you come in, but enjoy them. And that's how you continue to enjoy it. You know, people who come back years later or decades later to a park they were at as a kid, you know, if we can preserve it to where it looks like that looks the same for them. And the only changes that have been made have been made maybe for more visitor access or more more educational purposes. That's wonderful. Just leave things the way you are and leave things the way they came in and then enjoy them while you're here because that's part of the job. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and thank you for giving your two cents on what you do here and thank you thanks tyler well thank you very much for listening uh we definitely enjoyed interviewing tyler and we hope you enjoyed listening to it as well be sure to leave us a rating and review also be sure to follow us on facebook instagram and twitter and check out our website we have a lot of great resources there for you and also if you're looking for another hidden gem of the midwest in the national park sites um, we're going to encourage you to Follow along with Herbert Hoover National Historic Sites Facebook page, any social media, their website. Definitely a a hidden gem that I'm sure my husband and I will be checking out um, after hearing Tyler talk about it. It sounds pretty wonderful. It does. Uh, Yeah, so thank you again for taking a listen. We will see you next time on Footsteps, the Fort Larned podcast. (laughs) 